The Recovery Greenhouse is a podcast dedicated to the growth of ideas, concepts, and outlooks that support recovery and recovering communities. I'm Gerald Lott, your host and a person in long-term recovery. I'm also founder and executive director of Salt Valley Voices of Recovery. We're a recovery community organization serving Northwest Illinois. I'm also a certified peer recovery specialist, an entrepreneur, and a father. And after a long list of careers, I found my calling in helping others to find recovery. I work with many, many people and several addiction-related advisory boards every day. And my core belief is that people must make an effort to change their lives for recovery. There's a saying, no pain, no gain, and it's exactly correct. A person cannot experience significant life changes without enduring, accepting, and often welcoming discomfort. It isn't the change that hurts, it's our resistance to it. Um, Over the weeks of this podcast and radio show, I've I've kind of taken the liberty to pop in some uh, conversations that were had as part of Project Open, which was a a HRSA grant whereby uh, the communities in Lee, Whiteside, and Ogle counties came together, uh, the stakeholders came together to try to combat the opioid crisis between 2018 and 2021. Salt Valley Voices of Recovery actually benefited as uh, Project Open was one of the initial funders of our organization and and get kind of put our feet underneath us. Uh, it was headed up by Akil Khan of KSB Hospital, and Akil and I worked very closely uh, to put together something called Tuesday Talks, which are still available on uh, YouTube. If you're interested, go check it out at uh, KSB Project Open. But um, the, the conversation I'm going to play today took place between Akil and uh, Darren DeHaan, city manager of Oregon, Illinois, and Danny Langlaw, city manager of Dixon, Illinois. And they were talking about how addiction impacts communities and local governments. So uh, without further ado, here is that conversation. Hello and welcome to Tuesday Talk. My name is Akhil Khan. I'm the director of Project Open. Project Open is a federally funded HRSA grant from the Human Resources Service Administration aimed at combating the rural opioid epidemic. As we know, opioid epidemic is taking lives every day across our country. And through COVID and the pandemic and stay-at-home orders, unfortunately, those numbers started to increase. there was no one way to tackle the opioid epidemic when we got our group together. And, and again, Project Open is in Northwest Illinois with three counties. Um, it's a multifaceted approach and it involves a lot of collaboration. And, and, and today we're really excited to have with us Danny Langloss and Darren DeHaan. Danny is the city manager of Dixon, Illinois, which is the county seat in Lee County, which is uh, Northwest Illinois, about 100 miles west of Chicago. And he's actually the uh, founding member of the National Police Council for PARI. Um, and PARI is the Police Assisted Addiction and Recovery Initiative. And we'll have Danny talk about that a little bit. And today with us, we also have Darren DeHaan, who was a former police chief, as was Danny. So we're excited to get that perspective. Uh, Darren was a former police chief of the Oregon City, which is about 15 minutes northeast of Dixon. Um, and Darren is now the city administrator of uh, Oregon, Illinois. And so we're really excited to have these two experts here join us. Uh, they're going to bring their law enforcement perspective from their from their time as police chiefs and as detectives and, and you know working the streets and now to city official standpoint. So Darren, Danny, welcome to the show. Thanks for thanks for joining us. Thanks, Thank Gil. 
Darren, if you don't mind, I just wanted to pass it off to you real quick. Just a brief introduction, a little bit of background about yourself um, so the listeners kind of understand a little bit more about where you come from and then why the opiate epidemic and, and the topic of substance use disorder and addiction is important to you. Absolutely. Uh, I started with the Oregon Police Department in 96, um, kind of worked through the ranks uh, in um, part of that uh, tenure was working as a detective, uh, lieutenant detective. Um, so I was involved with a lot of the area uh, task force. Uh, and then in 2005, I transitioned to the chief of police position, uh, held that up until 2020. Um, and again, during that time, worked, continued to work with some of the area task force um, and as well as uh, working on the issues within our city. So uh, had some experience there in 2020. Again, I, I converted over to the city administrator position. So it's kind of a different bird's eye view of the city. A lot of times as a chief, you're working uh, kind of on minute issues uh, within the criminal justice system. And the opportunity from a city administrator position and a manager position is an overall view of the city and the impact of everything that happens. So um, I do think it's kind of given me some good perspectives from both sides as well. Thanks for that, uh, Darren. Danny, same question. Yeah, my name is Danny Lingloss. I'm the city manager for the city of Dixon. I too started in policing in 1996. All I ever wanted to do since I was a young boy was be a police officer. Uh, went to investigations, spent seven or eight years there and uh, end up in a similar role that Darren had over investigations. And then in 2008, became the police chief of Dixon, served in that role for right around 10 years and then transitioned into the city manager role. So um, in addition to, to being with the city, as Akil mentioned, I am on the National Police Council, helped found that with PARI. Uh, PARI is based out of Massachusetts, but it's now an organization that supports more than 400 law enforcement agencies and communities in, in more than 25 states. And so it's just an incredible organization. Couldn't be more excited to be here today. Yeah, we're very excited to be able to be over here. So you guys have two very unique perspectives, started in law enforcement and kind of with that lens and then have uh, the city manager lens. Can you just at a high level talk about your experiences with substance use disorder and addiction? from both lenses and uh, Darren, would you mind starting? Yeah, uh, and this is a, a really great conversation to have today. Uh, as recently as over the weekend, I had a kind of a, a friend of mine that reached out and asked for some advice on their, their child in crisis. Uh, and he's currently using methamphetamines and they were trying to figure out how they handle some issues and things like that. So. Uh, this, I mean, this really has impact on our communities. So um, as far as police chief, you know, it's one of those things where you're always responding to issues in, in the community. Um, you've got individuals as far as landlords and, and property owners around areas that we see substance abuse. Um, and there are, it's kind of a ripple effect often, especially in a small community. It's often, um, you know, a highlight in a certain area. And certainly the the local uh, communication, I, like everybody kind of knows what's going on. So you have a lot of pressure to try and handle situations. So historically, law enforcement's response always was, you know, let's target this house, let's target this area, let's start following vehicles, let's start doing a bunch of activity in the area. Um, and, and so you're trying to work up a case which takes months and months, um, and Danny can attest to this as well, and you may or may not uh, hit your mark and be able to get uh, criminal arrests in the situation and try to quote unquote resolve the issue in the uh, in the neighborhood. Uh, and so that was always the the mindset in law enforcement 
uh, for most of my career is just going after the quote unquote bad guys and bad girls and trying to make a positive effect, uh, which again, we felt like we were doing that. We were, you know, uh, limiting calls for service in a, in a home or, um, you know, when, when they were dealing, we were getting these people to stop coming into an area. And so neighbors felt like we had made this great impact, but in fact, we weren't fixing the issues. So uh, I think as we've gone in through our career uh, and we continue to learn uh, from programs like Danny has put together in Dixon, that there's a different and a better way to respond to these issues. Yeah, you know, I'll build off some of what Darren said because a lot of what his experiences were our experiences and there's an important role in enforcement. We've got a four pillar approach that I think we'll talk about in a little bit. But enforcement is key because a lot of times where there's drugs, there's gangs and there's guns. And so I think there's a different strategy in how we address drug dealers, organized gangs, violent criminals versus people that suffer from substance use disorder. You know, we know that 20 million people in our country a minimum of that suffer from substance use disorder. And of those only 10% get treatment to two point uh, of the 2.2 million people in jails and prisons. Half of those people have substance use disorder of those people, only 11% get treatment. And so when we look at the revolving door of the criminal justice system, basically once you get in, you don't get out. Should we be surprised when somebody goes to jail or goes to prison and gets out and reverts back to substance use disorder, reverts back to drugs, when we haven't offered them any treatment at all. And I think that answer is obvious. The answer is no. Um, what, what we got to realize is substance use disorder is a chronic relapsing disease. It's not a character, character defect. It's not a moral flaw. And so we've got to look at it and we've got to, we've got to address it from that situation. And, and when we look at this problem, you know, addiction and mental illness are two of the most critical issues facing every community across the entire country. Mm -hmm. No, no communities too rich, no communities too small. It doesn't matter if you're black, white, Asian, Hispanic, male, female, rich, poor, <clears throat> this disease doesn't discriminate. And I think one of the things that helped as we began to reshape perception on people with substance use disorder was the opioid epidemic. I don't want to go too far into that to let you lead the conversation, Akil, but one of the big differences with this epidemic, uh, when you look at the national heroin epidemic, is it, it it's founded in a lot of times legitimate opioid pain medications. So four out of five people that are addicted to heroin started on opioid pain medications. And of those, 33% had a legitimate prescription. Those are crazy numbers. Mm -hmm. So this was this was a much different thing that that during the time as this was evolving, we didn't even realize the negative impacts of of these opioids. The doctors didn't. I mean, big pharma is who realized and recognized it, but nobody else did. So people unsuspectively were becoming addicted to these opioids. And somebody might say, "Hey, okay, you find out you're addicted, quit." The withdrawals from opioids are so significant. You know, the bone aches, the the uncontrollable vomiting. I've had people explain it to me like somebody's ripping your spine out of your back. It's it's just not that easy. And as we began to get out and explain this to law enforcement, understand the fundamentals of that, we began to see a shift as we said, hey, we can't arrest our way out of this. It's treatment or death. We'll talk about those death numbers here in a minute. Um, but we've got to change. We've got to change our approach. And the, and the last thing I'll finish with before I kick it over to you is if law enforcement and the criminal justice system were a for-profit business, we would have gone bankrupt 
decades ago <laughs> because what we're doing doesn't work. And only because we're government funded have we allowed to continue and continue and continue on this very failed war on drugs. We've really got to reshape the war on drugs. It's got to be a community-based approach. And that's why I'm so passionate about because I've seen the difference in the impact from these programs, seen, you know, guys become fathers again, you know, kids get their mom back and those types of things, people be safe. So I'll turn it back to you to kind of lead that conversation. No, I, Danny, you nailed on some incredibly important stats. And when you talk about it, uh, how the, the, the opioid epidemic started to take hold, I mean, we got the, our initial grant product open was in 2018. Um, and it was a $200,000 planning grant. And we partnered with Lee and Ogle County. And in that, we did a key informant survey. So we found people who were actively using or were recent users. And we asked them, how did your, how did your um, addiction start? And half of them in that small sample size says it started in the doctor's office started with a, with a large supply of hydrocodone or some pain medication after a dental procedure or after a surgery. Um, and they thought, okay, doc said, I got to take all 30. I got to take all 30. And by the end of the 30, your brain is already slightly adjusted. And then you kind of have that um, craving or that need. And, and, you know, I, so I can totally appreciate the stat you mentioned about it, not being some sort of what we thought was maybe an underground black market drug trade truthfully started in a very pure and, and, and a um, good intention way. And it just, un unfortunately, we didn't have the knowledge or the research. And just so the listeners know, one of the big projects Project Open On is working with prescribers because opioids do play a role in pain management. But there was a time in there when pain was made the fifth vital sign and that pain is very subjective, right? So patients were saying, oh, it's through the roof and doctors wanted to satisfy it because hospitals were graded on how they managed pain at one point. So opioid prescriptions just flew through the roof and now we're kind of seeing that effect and part of Project Open's effort is to kind of curtail the average day supply. And, and so that was one big thing that um, you know, I wanted to bring up. And then, Danny, you mentioned something about it doesn't discriminate, rich versus poor. But some of the data does suggest that people in poverty, people with lower socioeconomic status, do have a higher propensity to become addicted or use. What have you guys seen in your experience with that? Yeah, I, I think that when you, you know, when you extrapolate for crime, people who commit crime, people who are in the criminal justice system, the controlling factor, and this is from my research and my thesis several years ago, actually isn't race, although the obvious thing is race and, race and ethnicity, right? It's poverty. The controlling factor is poverty. So when you are in poverty in those lower socioeconomic classes, um, you are much more likely to engage in criminal activity. It doesn't mean you're a criminal, right? You're more likely to have mental health disorders. You're more likely to have substance use disorders because some of the stuff when you look at substance use disorder has to do with the coping, has to do with the stress, has to do with the strain. You know, yeah. we can't even begin to imagine what it's like. You know, my dad grew up in the projects on the south side of Peoria. His mom died when he was 15. His dad was an alcoholic. In order to play baseball, his brother had to go steal a glove for him, right? And so I didn't experience that personally, but I did to my dad. And the challenges and struggles he had to adapt to and overcome and the way that impacted him and then going into the service at a very young age and being in Vietnam, that's a much different experience. And I think the, the three of us have had. Um, and so I think some of those things there, but the, here, here's the thing. It, you could put 10 people in a room and they could all end up over a month period of time consuming the same amount of opioids, but we're all different. Some of us are more susceptible to our personalities, our DNA, you know, the, the neurochemicals in our brain to become addicted. And so I think that's one thing we want to be sure to mention, you know, as well. Um, it, it's not, you take 15 of these over five days and you're going to be addicted. Some people will right. be, some people won't. Uh, but it's very individual. It's like, you know, I, I can eat cheeseburgers my whole life and you can eat cheeseburgers your whole life. I kill 
I can be 20 pounds overweight and have heart disease and you can be just fine. Right. Like everybody's impacted differently. And, and, and you said something about you, there's genetic predispositions. What, what some research has found in the recent recovery kind of, and Johan Hari talked about it is that it's the absence of connection, right? The absence of social connection. So oftentimes addiction starts with loneliness and we'll kind of, we can put that on the back burner for now, bring it up a little bit later, but I wanted to get Darren, you know, the national opioid epidemic, you were a police chief at the time that this really started to gain national attention. How has your view changed on the opioid epidemic from the time you were a police chief to now here in 2020 and 21, you become a city administrator. How has your viewpoint changed and how is it the same? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is one of those things that these discussions are so important so that law enforcement gets exposed as often as they can to some different perspectives. Uh, and I'll say, here in, in Oregon, we started experiencing individuals that were reporting burglaries, constantly reporting burglaries. And what, what they were claiming is individuals were coming in and taking their prescription meds. <clears throat> and I'd actually reached out to the area chiefs associations and said, is anybody else seeing these kind of anomalies with these increased burglaries? Uh, it got to the point where we had to kind of create a system and work with area doctors so that they would actually contact us and not reissue a, a new prescription because obviously what was happening is overconsumption of those prescriptions. Mm. They were then reporting them as burglaries. They were taking a, trying to take a copy of the police report to their doctor and get it reissued. And I think uh, what that did is, as well is a lot of these individuals that are, uh, you know, they, they don't have a car and they were getting individuals. I saw this through our, my career where they would get an individual to help them go back, get another prescription. And they, just like you said, is that they're not socially connected, but if you can get somebody else in your addiction cycle, that's somebody to share that with. And then you go through those same experiences and they're your ride and they're, they're helping you sell some property to get more money. And it's just this cycle. And we saw this effect where we felt like we're a small community. We kind of have this, you know, this isn't going to happen here uh, perspective. And then we saw it grow and we saw these individuals who, never hang, hung around certain individuals, draw them in in certain ways. And then the addiction cycle started with them and it grew and it grew and it was so influential over individuals that they were around um, that again, it, it you absolutely saw it explode. And then we were in it and we're like, what are we doing? We, sat, we started to see these deaths and these overdoses uh, started with the Narcan training and bringing individuals back. We had one day where we actually uh, we Narcan, we used Narcan on two sons and a mother, uh, all in the in the day, same day within a four hour period. And again, once you start to see those anomalies, you, you kind of woke up a little bit, but we were already behind the curve. Uh, so certainly uh, in, in my time that I've spent with Project Open and being involved in more uh, a broader range of uh, discussion, it's really opened my mind to looking at this issue. Uh, in a different perspective and sitting next to somebody that's a uh, person in recovery and listening to the challenges that they've had and the things that they face in society to try and overcome this. Uh, and, and that is the most important thing, again, from my perspective is I'm in a position to hopefully work on programs and look at things holistically from the city perspective, uh, not only economic development, um, you know, working with our churches and whatever we can do to try and get support for these individuals and get them out of that cycle and break that chain of, you know, socialization uh, amongst themselves and it grows. So 
you know, trying to, to, to help all these individuals and to bring them and reconnect back to society in a positive way, I think is the most important thing. And so earlier in the conversation was brought up that, you know, what do we expect when, when we, when we incarcerate someone, don't get them treatment, get back on the street, they use again and it's that cycle that keeps on happening. And Danny, I want to talk about the safe passage program, which was a very revolutionary way to try to break that cycle. Can you talk a little bit about safe passage? Yeah, thank you, Akil. So in March of 2015, we had three heroin overdose deaths in 10 days, just shocked the community. There was a call to action like we'd really never seen before, really spearheaded by Kathy Ferguson, the, the health department administrator for the Lee County Health Department, and then a high ranking official within KSB Hospital. And so for really the first time, you had the health department, the hospital, the police chief, the sheriff, uh, the substance use community, faith-based schools, um, I, thought, I don't know if I said state's attorney or not, um, a judge, all sitting around the table and talking about this and saying, what is it that we can do? And there was a lot of conversation about awareness and community forums. And so we did that, which was big. But as we were sitting and talking, Allison White who's part of a group called Safe Harbor, um, looked to the sheriff and I and said, have you heard what the police chief in Gloucester's doing? And we said, no, what's he doing? And she said, he's going to let people come to the department, turn in their drugs, turn in their drug paraphernalia, not arrest them and put them straight to treatment. Would you guys be willing to do that? And we looked at each other right away and said, yeah, of course we would. But the thing is, you know, for about nine years, I, I you know, specialized in drug investigations, worked a ton of cases. And many times the people that were helping us get the drug dealers, the informants, people with substance use disorder, we tried to get them treatment. We, we tried to use our badge to get them through the door. It, you couldn't get it done. You know, in Dixon, Illinois, you know, the closest detox or inpatient treatment facility at the time was an hour away and most were two and a half away. And so you would call and you would get on waiting lists and these things would be two, three, four weeks. And so Allison ended up setting a call up with us, with the Gloucester police chief. And he talked about things like we can't arrest our way out of this problem. It's treatment or death. He was going to take a stand against the treatment system. Now in Gloucester, they had some really good treatment options, but that was only if you had something, right? That's only if you had insurance or if you had cash and money. And so he was going to take a stand because people were refusing to treat people who didn't uh, because, you know, Medicaid, Medicare reimburse at different rates. And so we took his model and we weren't going to be quite as aggressive as that. But what we did was, you know, we met with Rosecrans out of Rockford. I want to give them all the props in the world to learn about the treatment system, to learn about who were reputable um, treatment centers within our region. Then we reached out um, and got meetings with all the executive directors. And by the time we left the meetings, we had partnerships with 10 or 11 different treatment centers. And we were able to create the Safe Passage Initiative and become the second program in the country to do so. And, and since then, we put nearly 500 people directly to treatment. When I say directly, imagine this. Somebody comes into the police department or calls in now or the ER might call us and say, hey, I want to go to treatment. I need help. Generally, within 45 minutes to an hour, we know where they're going. And within a couple hours, we can have them on their way to treatment. And so that's the Safe Passage Initiative, and there's been some evolutions to it with recovery coaches, um, coordination of care, and some lessons that we learned from that. There's been an evolution in our area from the Recovery Homes Project Open, many community forums, Narcan implementation, drug take back, 
um, all those types of things. But it, whatever questions you have about Safe Passage, you know, go ahead on that. That's the overview of the program. So how did that shift from arrest to police defection? How did that impact local government? So you did that as a police chief. Now you're sitting here as and now you're sitting here as a city administrator and you look back on that program. What impact did it have on local government, you think? Well, I think it had an impact on the entire community. It's one of the things that we're most proud of and what we've done here because it completely changed and began to eliminate and reduce, not eliminate, but reduce the stigma as related to substance use disorder. There, there are so many people that in the cynicism of policing years ago in my younger days, I'm sure Jaron, you know, had this said this this person is never going to turn their life around. There's nothing we can do to help this person. And we've seen countless people that that was said about that have turned their lives around, that have jobs, have stable homes, have families. You know, one of the most rewarding things I think ever happened was I got a Facebook message two years after uh, we put a guy into treatment, got him through treatment, coordinated his care. And, and his wife reached out to me and said, you know, we just can't thank you and your team enough because for the first time in five years, my son had his dad at a, at a t-ball game and his dad's out playing catch with them. And, and that's important, right? Because I think there's generations and cycles and things like this that happen. And so that's the true impact. We saw a reduction in our numbers in the jail. We saw a reduction in our numbers in crime. Uh, we didn't have that scientifically researched because we weren't going to pay thousands of dollars to do it. Um, and we've seen so many people that have maintained that. And then what's really awesome is when somebody has got to sobriety and, and long, long-term sobriety, right? So more than a year, two years, three years, four years, and then they come back and then they are helping people because those are the rock stars within these community partnerships that you can't forget. They change everything. And that's the recovery community. And you see what Gerald Lott's doing now with his team, um, you know, Sauk Valley Voices of Recovery. You see what Allison White uh, has done. And, you know, she ended up becoming our full-time Safe Pastures coordinator, um, serving Lee and Whiteside County. And we served Ogle County some as well. Um, and, and so there's so much power there because we can read books and we can talk to people and all those things. But when you sit across from somebody who has that experience, who's been through it, that kind of takes it to a whole to a whole new level. Darren, anything to add to that? No, I think uh, from being his northern neighbor, uh, we certainly saw the impact very early on. Um, and, and it put us in a position where I, I remember sitting in my office, we're doing interviews on several suspects on some burglaries. Uh, and I'm talking with one of the female suspects and I'm trying to offer her a different route. You know, I'm talking about how I knew it was related to, um, you know, her, her substance abuse uh, disorder. And she just kept, you know, she was exasperated saying, you know, you never help. You, you, you guys always talk because you want information, but you never help. Uh, but there certainly were avenues at that point where we could hook her up and get her help and get her out of the system uh, and hopefully change her life. But she was just exasperated at the point uh, and she was deep into this uh, substance abuse and just didn't feel like there was an out. So, uh, again, just being uh, Danny's northern neighbor, we, we saw impact very early on. Uh, you know, it was a fantastic program that's that's done some great work. Yeah, no, I um, I came to the community in 2018, so about three years after uh, Safe Passage was implemented. But it was very clear to see the passion from folks like Allison White, Gerald Lott, um, 
advice that we'd give to other communities now is the, as Danny mentioned, the voice of someone with lived experience, someone in the recovery community needs to be involved in these processes. We sat around a table with some of the smartest people in our area, um, designing and trying to implement new programs. And it'd be the person with lived experience. You'd be like, that sounds really great. And that would work in a perfect world, but here's how this, you need to adjust it. Here's why it won't work because of these reasons. And that perspective totally, I mean, we just crumple the paper, toss it out and start it again. Um, and so that would be kind of a, a word of advice to other local governments considering a police deflection program. And I know Danny Pari would help with this or you who, who could help organizations get a police deflection program started? Yeah, so Pari absolutely could. So through uh, Pari, you know, we have actually helped more than 150 communities across the United States create programs just like Safe Passage. One of them is the biggest program in the country called Hope Not Handcuffs. It's in Macomb County, Michigan, serves about 750,000 residents. And so you know, we have a team that consists of myself, the police chief, Steve Howell, Jeff Reagan is one of our detectives. Um, and so through Illinois, into Iowa, you know, into Indiana, we've gone into, but, you know, me with Pari, we've been, you know, really all across the country. And so they're there specifically to help do this, to create policies and things, and we'll come out. So that's important when you're going to engage law enforcement, because, you know, it's hard to change perspectives and it's hard to change views. And one of the things when we went to Macomb County, Michigan, there are 25 police chiefs and a sheriff, uh, the chief judge and somebody um, it, like it, like it'd be the equivalent of Sock Valley Voice of Recovery had reached out. And so I flew into Macomb County, Michigan. Um, one of our partners from Pari flew into Macomb County, Michigan. Our job was to convey the importance, the why, why law enforcement to step on board and do this. And they had about half four and the other half were either against or just wasn't, weren't sure and ready to commit. And so the power of this and getting law enforcement on board and your state's attorneys on board and your judges on board is that, that a lot of these things will run with and, and, and through them as that goes on. And, and so we did that. And after we presented for about an hour and a half, John Rosenthal took the first part and I took the second part and talked to him as a police chief and what we've seen and what our goals are, you know, the, the mission of every police department is to create a safer community. Are we tired of banging our head off the wall? Um, and when we finished up, they said, okay, whoever's on board, whoever wants to, to join can get in the picture. But if you're not sure, we only want people that are for sure. And every single chief and the sheriff got into that picture and that program just took off. And so just, just understanding who the right people are to, to come in and to bring in as we do this is essential. And, and these programs, I, there's, I don't know that there's ever been a better, greater impact I've been part of to help save lives, change lives, restore families, create safer communities. Thanks for that, Danny. And, and, and so I just, again, want to emphasize that, that resources out there. So if any local government is listening to this and, and finds this program interesting, I know Danny would offer his assistance and then Pari, Absolutely. I'll put the website up one more time because it blended really well with your blue shirt there, Darren, for a moment in there. <laughs> Uh, perfect blue shirt over there. Oh, there we go. Okay. <laughs> you talked about safer communities. And Darren, in an, in an earlier communication before this thing, we had talked about crime impact, drug-related crime on, you know, the sense of safe that community members might have. Um, and then kind of a, a reaction to something, an event happening or, or um, you know, people might maybe, um, I think you use the word building walls and fortresses or something like that. Can you kind of dive into that a little bit uh, from your lens? Yeah. Uh, you know, law enforcement's constantly 
um, collecting statistics. You know, we're looking at crime stats all the time. Uh, and oftentimes I think it's just, you know, we're checking a box. You know, the, the state wants our crime statistics, the feds want our crime statistics. Uh, and it wasn't until I started getting involved in economic development that I really saw the impact of those crime statistics. You know, you always knew as a police chief, you, you want to repress crime. Uh, you want to show a, a safe community and make sure everybody feels comfortable living here. But it was, again, when I started working on economic development and seeing that a potential multi-million dollar developer is looking at your crime statistics to decide whether or not to do some development in your community, that it really hit me on another level. Uh, that individuals are looking at this as far as moving here uh, as a quality of life. And really what happens is, is when you start to increase the number of calls in a certain neighborhood, I think individuals do go into this fear mode uh, and they create this, they lose their sense of safe. Uh, and so no matter how many times you're down there trying to arrest them, uh, individuals, it really created this fear factor that people thought this major criminal activity is going on. And we've always had issues with individuals in our community not wanting to get involved as far as reporting crime or criminal activity uh, because they always felt that there was going to be some kind of repercussion from the criminal element. So uh, again, it's so important to take a look at these things because it has such a broad effect on development and individuals come to our community. Uh, and it, it, we're all very well, well aware of our current census uh, and how important that was. We had seen a loss of uh, population in our rural communities, and we all worked very hard to try and increase that population, which relates to you know sales tax income and state income, uh, which allows us to do other programs and fix streets and do all the things that we need to have a, a quality community. So um, it's it's so important again to have an overall view of the impact of this stuff for your community so that you can get people to come here uh, and want that quality of life. Danny, anything to tag on to that? Dar Darren has got us to the, the meat and potatoes of why we're here today, the economics of, of addiction, right? The impact that it has. You talked about the sense of safe, talked about crime statistics. You know, I can't help but think that that, that, that developer who might see that number, they'd be like, I don't want to build there anymore. The impact that that has on jobs, then the impact that it has on retaining residents, which then has the impact on state income dollars to build roads and the good roads attract. I mean, that cycle, gosh, I don't envy your jobs at all. Danny, anything to tag on to this, this discussion? Today? I mean, there, I, I felt this for a while and I know that I'm a little biased, but there's no greater investment in your community than public safety. If people don't feel safe, they're not going to want to be there. And I think, you know, Darren, you know, hit it out of the park with his answer to this. And developers are absolutely looking at that. And I think, you know, when I think there's two sides of the story you can tell, you know, when we tell a story and a lot of the economic work we're doing, um, it's about crime statistics as they look at those. But it's about community partnerships and the way we serve the community. It's really about the fact that we care, that we're responsive. And you don't see communities putting together partnerships like Project Open. And in the early days, like, you know, what PRISM was. And it says something about the forward thinking and, and the leadership in the community. And the other thing you can't miss is now more than ever, especially in the larger companies, their employees are requiring them to be purpose driven, to be involved, especially in social justice type issues. And so it's just another layer of how we can tell our story and what it is that we're doing. Um, but I think I think it, it starts with caring. Um, it starts with realizing, you know, behind every death, there's a family, right? I, I get the fact that there's an economic impact. I get the fact we're going to look at these things crime statistic wise. You know, somebody said, well, this is awful weak on crime. Well, 
No, what was weak on crime was the approach we used to take, right? It was dumb on crime. This isn't weak on crime. It's smart on crime and it works. And so to Darren's point, when you implement programs like these, full community involvement. I mean, look, KSB Hospital, Akon, Akil, they, you have detox now. You never had detox. I think it just went full service. We've got MAT in our area now, right? Like all these different evolutions. And these things are important to show the world that, that we have our stuff together and, and why you should come and make an investment here. So it's the community-based approaches that then lead to do, I mean, ideally lead to lower crime, which then lead to more development, which lead to more jobs. So let's, I mean, it sounds like this first domino in this whole, in this whole process is community-based approaches. So can both of you dive into some of the, you know, some of the things you guys see as far as we'll start with what were some community-based approaches that we thought were going to be successful that didn't end up being. So there's lessons learned there. And then we'll move to what have been successful. So what did we do in the past that didn't work from a community-based approach? Darren and Danny, jump in whenever. Well, I think you know, historically for myself is there was such a stigma. Uh, so when we tried to do some things publicly, people just shied away from those things. So one, uh, they wanted to kind of keep their head buried in the sand that that can't possibly be happening here. Uh, and two, I think that stigma kept them from coming together and starting to organize and to, to kind of work on things. So I think that's changing over time again with uh, Project Open and um, really delving into using the right language uh, to describe people that are uh, in substance uh, use disorder, um, taking a look at mental health and destigmatizing that. I think those are all the big steps that we have to take where we failed in the past, but I think that was a society issue as a whole um, that we couldn't get past those stigmas. So I think the first step is, again, working on those stigmas within your community, uh, showing the effect that individuals can come out of, uh, can go into recovery uh, and they see success. Uh, they can rebuild families. They can rebuild positive relationships. Um, and, and again, starting at that basic level of stigma is very important. Danny, anything to tag on to that? You know, I, when you look at lessons learned and failures, I think early on the, the fact that, you know, that we thought the criminal justice system could handle this problem that just has gotten so much bigger to ever imagine uh, was a failure, you know, through safe passage early on um, coordination of care was a failure. You know, we'd, we'd get all this work and we'd get somebody to detox. And then we thought we we're going to be communicated with and they're ready to transition or they were going to transition. And next thing you know, they were back and they were relapsing, which is really dangerous when you come out of detox. And so we had coordination of care, but then on top of that, you know, the follow-up and providing different things. So I, I don't, I don't think we had any huge, huge failures necessarily. Um, but there were always ways to improve and always ways to, to more wrap ourselves around people and to help them, which is so essential as we move, as we move forward. You know, Danny, you talk about the, the handoffs and, you know, we send someone to treatment when they come back. One of the things that happened during the planning phase of project open was the sequential intercept model. And a lot of hats off and a lot of credit goes to Natalie Andrews, who led a lot of these early early efforts. And that model looked at, OK, when, what are the entry points that someone can come into the system, right? From the ED, the police department, uh, to any social service agency. And then how equipped are those agencies to handle that individual? And I think that helped us learn that, hey, look, a lot of people don't know about the varying resources. So even in a small rural community where a lot of people know everybody, the agencies were talking together. And that's what I think is one of the biggest pros of Project Open is now agencies are starting to talk together a lot more and be more aware of the resources. And from there, we've been able to bring, you know, the groups have been, you know, all of our provider and treatment group was able to bring MAT, 
Uh, KSB's had a detox program in varying forms. It's a lot more formalized now, and we're coordinating with CGH and, and, and working together a lot more. And so I think that was probably what I see as one of the biggest wins, the fact that no one was trying to attack this in isolation. So it wasn't just criminal justice, you solve it, or treatment hospitals, you solve it. It was no, anyone could come at any point, at any point of their, it's a spectrum. It's not a binary thing. They can be at any point of their recovery or addiction. How do we make sure that we equip them? And it was becoming aware of everybody else's strengths and leveraging their weaknesses. Yeah, it was, Akil. And I think I think you nailed it. You know, you, you got to have one of the, the big things, whether you're going to run a program like this or whether you look at the, the success that, that we're having right now coming out of COVID with our economic development team, it's all about teamwork and partnerships. And we can't surround ourselves with people who are the same. We've got to surround ourselves with people that are different, different backgrounds, you know, different struggles, different educations, different life experiences, different work experiences, you know, different sectors, because it's going to take all those things. And early on, you know, we were doing a lot of incredible, incredible work with Safe Passage, but not until KSB, you know, fully understood the impact. And, you know, Dave Schreiner became 100% committed and your administration did, you know, not until the court system became fully committed, not until, you know, Sinisippi was always fully committed. The police became fully committed, not until we had these partnerships even outside of our community were we able to take it to the level it is now because we didn't have detox. We didn't have recovery homes. We couldn't get people to treatment. Mm -hmm. um, none of those things. And now, like you said, it's that whole spectrum. And now, you know, a lot of the work you're working on with some key partners, which I really applaud is, you know, the job placement and those kinds of things. So I know you're going to talk about in a little bit. So it's really about understanding 360, what people need who are in the recovery phase. Again, why it's so important to engage people who are in recovery and then, and then being able to take all these people from these different areas and align them around a common purpose. Um, it's really a powerful thing. The synergies that have been created are, are just incredible. And I, I applaud the work you're doing to run Project Open and to keep all this moving in the right direction because I know it's a lot of work. I, I There's no way that I could uh, take all the credit for it. There's a lot of people. I mean, D Darren, Danny, you both are big parts of the effort. Uh, the recovery community, treatment community, behavioral health. Uh, I mean, there's just so many players involved, and I'm just I'm happy to be a part of it. I, I, I wanted to share a stat that I looked up uh, a little while ago that talked about of every federal, of every dollar that federal and state government spent on substance use and addiction, about 95.6 cents were to pay for the wreckage, 1.9 cents went to prevention and treatment, 0.4 cents went to research, 1.4 cents went to taxation and regulation. So our overwhelming majority was in the incident itself. And you had mentioned earlier, if, if, if police departments run as for-profit entities, they go bankrupt, right? Oh yeah. Now we're, we're I, I think we're starting to see the shift toward, well, actually I know because of Project Open, I mean, the, the federal government literally said, we need to put money towards this. And Project Open started as a $200,000 planning grant and is now a $1 million three-year implementation grant where we're implementing a number of innovative solutions and, I, I, and again, we won't talk about it here, but I, I encourage everyone to visit theprojectopen.com, the Facebook page, or listen to one of the earlier Tuesday talks, the second one that talks a little bit about it. But there's now, I feel like a lot more dollars being put towards prevention and treatment. And now the next frontier is recovery because there's not a lot of money. And what we've learned, I've learned through my research is that peer support is as important, if not more important in someone's treatment recovery journey than treatment itself. And so I just, you know, I'm, I'm going to throw that out there to see what you guys' initial impressions or thoughts are or experiences are with those kind of stats. And yeah, you know, um, getting through a five-day detox and a 29-day 
you know, program, you know, of treatment, that's, that's the beginning. And if that's all we're going to do for somebody, our success rates are going to be super low, right? They're going to be 10%, 15%. But when you talk about the investment and the trouble and, and recovery, I kill, and really the peer support and wrapping our arms around people and making sure they're getting where they need to go and making sure that that treatment is coordinated. Um, it changes everything. And I mean, we're, we're seeing numbers over 50% that have come through our program. Now, the great thing with project open is, you know, as police officers, we're not researchers. Um, you know, we know that there's an incredible impact. We're working with the people, we're working with the families, we're seeing the lives turned around, but if we're going to continue to direct money here, we're going to continue to direct it towards the recovery side. The work that you and your team are doing by compiling all that data is going to be essential because, you know, money is going to follow the data, not, you know, and the stories are going to be important as we sit in front of legislatures. And that's why, you know, you know, the, the grants were created for programs like ours. And we've, we've received an $80,000 a year grant thereabouts for the last five or six years. Um, the stories mattered when we passed the first police deflection legislation in the country that authorizes, legitimizes police deflection. So there's no more arguments like there were in some suburb areas between a state's attorney saying you have you can do this or you can't. Um, but you got to have the stories. You got to have the data. And so I really appreciate the work that's happening there around the data. I couldn't agree more. I think, uh, you know, my closing conversation is things like this Tuesday talk. So you guys coming out and talking about it is that community education. It is creating that awareness. And it ultimately, if you don't know where to go, to start the conversation, find one other person passionate about the issue, start the conversation. They'll know somebody, you'll know somebody. And before you know it, you'll have a consortium of 35 plus agencies, 50 plus members working on the best ways to treat, you know, if you can keep the patient or the, you know, the individual with substance use at the center of the care, at the center of the conversation, will never go wrong. And with that, my name is Akil Khan, Director of Project Open. I encourage you guys to visit theprojectopen.com, our Facebook page, our YouTube page, see more Tuesday talks, and tune into a future one. Darren, Danny, much appreciated for everything you guys do for our communities, as both as law enforcement and now as city administrators and managers. And thanks for your time on Tuesday Talk. See you later. Thank you, Akil. Thank you, Thank you Darren. Thank you, Danny. So again, that was the conversation between Danny Langloss, city manager of Dixon, Illinois, Darren DeHaan, city manager of Oregon, Illinois, and Akil Khan, who at the time was the director of the Project Open Grant for KSB Hospital. Um, I appreciate them taking the time to have that conversation and allowing us to re-air it at this point. This program is produced by me, and sometimes you'll hear some glitches. I hope you'll excuse my uh, my, my lack of savvy for, for my uh, passion. Uh, as we move forward, please know that help is available. So I want to thank KSB Hospital. I want to thank the city of Dixon. I want to thank the city of Oregon. I want to thank Kate. Um, NRG Media, the radio station, and Slang Music Group for providing the music. Uh, Illinois Department of Human Services Super for funding us and our activities. Uh, the Lee Whiteside Ross Council, the Ogle DeKalb Ross Council. There's just so many. Uh, Sinisippi Center, Dixon Police Department. So many, so many people to thank as we all work to try and help people recover from uh, substance use disorder. So uh, 
if you need help, reach out, go to your police station, go to the hospital, go to the, you know, go stand on the corner and yell that you need help. Just let somebody know. Don't suffer alone and don't try to do it alone. You can always reach us at svvor.org or you can call us at 779-707-0151. So until next week, take care of yourself.